0: Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May.
1: Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Stefan Fatshächer, a behavioral scientist based in Denmark. Welcome, Stefan.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very happy to be here.
1: I am likewise very happy to have you here. So Stefan studies pro-social and antisocial behavior and personality, including how boredom motivates aggression and sadism, and the pro and antisocial consequences of empathy and compassion. And I came across his work when I was doing my own research and Kept coming across this message of compassion and this sort of sadism or revanchism which I couldn't really understand and so I went on this quest to find answers and to see who'd done work in this field and of course I came across Stefan. The problem being that I wanted to cite him and didn't know how to say his last name and so I reached out to him and he was kind enough to actually do a recording and dropbox it to me and we've had a fantastic dialogue ever since so I'm very happy to have him here with me today. So let's jump into it because I have lots of questions. Starting with, between sadism and the dark side of compassion, your research seems to be a cynic's dream. What led you to work in this area?
0: So I started actually from, from the good side. So I wanted to understand why people cooperate with each other. And then I discovered that many people in many situations do not cooperate right? When it comes to group work or when it comes to politics or like we, there are so many conflicts. And then I looked into solutions, how to solve conflicts. And then I found out that, okay, the classic reward and punishment works. So rewarding the good guys and punishing the bad guys. So I was very interested in this punishment because it really helps us to foster cooperation between people. If you think you're going to be punished or like disapproved by the group, then you start cooperating with others. And this is like a well-established finding. So the punishment really helps or the threat of punishment, right? And then I thought, okay, what are the motives of those who punish others in the group? And I thought, ah, this is like upholding cooperation and learning others and teaching others how to behave better. And then I discovered, ah, this is probably not the case because a lot of punishment is driven by revenge and wanting to harm other people. So it's again like the dark side that I discovered. But I was also really fascinated about that. And from that, I started to investigate who is punishing others. And I also discovered that that, that the bad guys punish. For instance, also those people with like personality trait that reflects sadism. So like really wanting to harm others for fun or for pleasure. So they are also punishing. So this was like my start from like the good side to understand cooperation and to how to uphold cooperation to discover that many acts are done out of, yeah, like not the best and most noble motives.
1: (laughs) I really like this story that You started with, oh, everyone gets along. Let's figure out why to, oh, yeah, let's hit each other and punish each other. And that'll make us get along. You better be good kids or they'll come after you. So what an interesting journey that's been so far. And so you've mentioned a couple of terms here already. So, you know, about compassion and empathy and what have you. So before we get into the core of research, could you quickly describe for me how you use these terms? Because I know they can be sometimes a bit contested.
0: So the concept of empathy is probably a disaster because everyone has a different understanding about what empathy is, what compassion is. So I think I would describe empathy as an umbrella term, capturing many different tendencies, like the cognitive part of empathy, trying to understand another person. And reading the other person's emotions and thoughts in like more or less accurate way. So like this is like the cognitive understanding part, and then the effective part, right? So like the emotions, the emotional response that results from reading another person's emotions and taking their perspectives. So we have these two parts of empathy, like the cognitive part and the affective part. Um, yeah. And compassion is yeah, it's also used in so many different ways. When holding a baby that is crying, yeah, we have this, this concern for the baby, but also this warm glow maybe. Yeah? So some people would say, this is compassion. I use compassion more in a way when another person is suffering and we have these concerned feelings for that other person who is suffering. And... Yeah, sometimes we have this warm glow, but often it's also related to a bit more distress and like also an emotion or a state that we want to avoid because feeling concerned for a suffering other person, it also affects us. And we feel in a negative way of we share the negative emotion, we share the negative state. When I talk about compassion, I didn't want this a bit negative flavored concern and being moved for another person that suffers
1: so if i understand correctly then when you're talking about compassion you're really talking about emotions for others whether it's the warm glow or whether it's it's the worry does it sound like there's an empathetic component in there as well when you're talking about compassion if it feels bad within us as well
0: yeah because you need this understanding of another person's state that you you need to understand that another person is suffering Mm -hmm. so that's the the first cognitive step and then we can develop reactions towards or have emotional reactions towards the, that suffering person. And usually we feel moved and concerned, except for some people who don't, who like it.
1: Okay. It's like people not to be friends with. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So thank you for clarifying that for me. Because it's. I think it's really interesting that in the mediation and conflict resolution world, because mediate.com, we do talk a lot about compassion. And it's treated as this sort of panacea for all kinds of conflicts. You know, if we just feel compassionate enough, all the problems will go away. And so to what extent is that true, do you think?
0: I think it's true to a large extent, especially when we feel compassion for the opponent, for the groups that we are in conflict with. So then really compassion unfolds as beautiful potential to reduce. So I'm very in favor of feeling compassion for other people. The problem comes in when we feel compassion only for our own people, for our in-group members, right? And don't feel compassion for the out-group, for the conflict partner. So then compassion is biased and we only direct our behavior towards in-group members and not towards out-group members or the conflict partners.
1: Okay. Okay. No, I think that's think a really good point. And so does that sort of imply a limit to compassion? So if we have this boundless compassion for the world at large, then that's overall overall better for the world. And But if it's a very sort of small compassion, so only people who look like me or act like me or vote like me, then it can become quite harmful as I'm understanding it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And this is what Paul Bloom also puts for, right? That our effective responses like compassion are biased towards our in-group members, those who we like, who we care for. And compassion is often an automatic reaction, right? So of course we can learn it. We can try to be compassionate and motivate ourselves, but it's often an an impulsive reaction that we have or don't have. So in in that sense, it is biased. Mm -hmm. And if you like, I can also talk about some more like even harmful consequences of compassion.
1: Please, I would love to hear about this. Let's hear about the dark side.
0: Yeah, that's why I'm here for. When we feel compassion for our in-group members, yeah, and, mm-hmm. and our in-group members, so a friend or like our partners, we're harmed by an out-group member. Mm-hmm. So like the harm is, like the out-group members are responsible for the harm of the in-group members and we feel compassion for our friend, for our partner, then we more likely want to harm the outgroup member because we care about our in-group members. So it has this, it, so compassion and empathy for our in-group members. It magnifies our anger towards the out-group uh, who, who was responsible for the harm. And this is what we, we, we really show also in a in series of studies. And yeah, so this is like when we think about political conflicts or like also wars, when like the war in Israel and Palestine, and or like Ukraine and Russia, right? The in-group feels compassion for the in-group members, and this compassion motivates or increases our anger towards those who commit or do bad things to our close others. So in in that way, compassion can have like unwanted consequences okay
1: so i guess the sort of a way of capturing it, this is that if i've got my best friend and someone's nasty to my best friend i'm going to get real mad at that third party for being nasty which is a, yeah. <laughs> perhaps an oversimplification a little bit less dramatic but that's the short of it as i understand it
0: exactly yeah because we care and we're moved by our friends problems yeah and, and suffering yeah
1: and actually i have a question which i'm not sure i I feel like you're one of the best people to try and answer this but I mean we have this idea then that there's tight compassion people who are really close to us that can be sometimes problematic whereas a sort of wider compassion so we're feeling compassionate towards the world at large can be a bit healthier a bit more positive but I'm wondering if there's any costs for us when we try and be so encompassing in our compassion because I mean, it sounds really tiring honestly
0: yeah it is and also our friends and family members also want that we feel compassion for them and not for
1: (laughs) (laughs) we want to be your favorite
0: (laughs) the downside is if we feel compassion for all people like Mm -hmm. a universal compassion then this might also reduce our in-group bonding right so like Mm -hmm. the in-group identity because we do not commit only to our in-group but like also to the, the outgroup. And so we might also be perceived as not loyal. So then th- there mm-hmm. might be some downsides to that. Although from like a universal perspective, this is the way to go, I think.
1: Yeah, <laughs> from a universal perspective. It sounds great. No, I, I can definitely find, I find that really interesting because there's kind of implications for self-esteem, right, as well. If I'm I find there with a partner or something, and they feel the same way towards me as far as compassion goes and caring goes that they do towards some random person they've never met I'm going to be like why aren't I more important like why don't you care more so Um, maybe it's a reflection on me but I can definitely see that there would be self-esteem components to this yeah it sounds like a very delicate balance
0: I totally agree so it's often about balance
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) excellent Okay, so then turning to another area of your research, you've done a fair bit of work on the relationship between boredom, boredom and sadism. So I understand you've done experiments with online trolling, the military amongst parents, and even fantasies. And question one: What kind of fans are we talking about here? And secondly, what do you mean by sadism?
0: Yeah, so so we're talking about the sadistic fantasy of shooting another person for fun. So. <laughs>
1: That is very sadistic. It
0: is. Um, the good news is that not many people have those fantasies, right? Yeah. It's really a low number, which is mm-hmm. good. But they, some people do have them. And this also reflects like the definition of sadism is harming other people for fun. And if mm-hmm. I think about shooting another person for fun, this really reflects like the definition of sadism Yeah.
1: In short, what is the relationship in general terms between boredom and sadism?
0: So boredom has, I think, a really positive image. When you look into the literature and there are books about boredom and creativity, right? So that we need to be bored to have these good thoughts and to solve problems and so forth. But the question is, um, so I don't deny that, but the question is, what does boredom typically leads to? And it is a negative emotion. And it relates to people who are bored very often, are more anxious, and they are more depressed. And we, when we look at social behavior, like aggressive behavior, we thought there might be a relationship, like reading the old classics of Eric Fromm, this uh, big psychoanalyst, uh, he proposed that boredom is a really a, a negative state because it's, it, says mm-hmm. us that, or like it tells us that we need to change the situation. We need to mm-hmm. do something. And that is might be more stimulating, and aggression harming others, is really stimulating, yeah. So it it gives us this, yeah, this because it like, gives us a kick, right? It, it is literally
1: not, almost yeah?
0: <laughs> and when we look at, at bullying at schools, at hostility on the internet, on other aggressive behavior, like when we're driving a car. So some car drivers are really aggressive, but every time we, we can see that. That people like it to, or some people like it to, to be aggressive on the internet, like in schools, at the workplace, in a car. And what we show is that when people are bored, they are more likely to harm others for fun, to get rid of the boredom. Yeah. So uh, it's really a downside of boredom.
1: As you're saying all this, I'm kind of wondering if there's other ways in which this boredom can be funneled as opposed to, oh, it hurt some people. And especially in the context, we hear a lot about this idea of the attention economy so that our waking hours just consumed by ads and notifications and updates and doom scrolling, which is my personal advice. So if our attention is so consumed, how can we be bored? Is that the same kind of boredom you're talking about?
0: So it's a very good question because when we take our phone and go to Instagram or... Facebook,
1: Reddit, in my case, me okay. information, yeah... <laughs>
0: then this might be a signal that we have been bored for Mm. just like like a moment. Mm. So, of course, I think the episodes, so how long we are bored nowadays, are like much shorter than 40, 50 years ago, or like even 200 years ago. But still, we experience this emotion now when we watch Netflix for four or five hours. Although the material is quite stimulating, at some point we say, this is boring. Yeah, I don't find the stimulation or the meaning in what I'm doing. And these are like, by the way, the two sources of boredom that we don't find stimulation in a task or that we don't find meaning in, in, in the things we are doing. And both can like promote boredom. Yeah?
1: Interesting. As you think about Netflix binging I'm thinking about this book series I'm reading at the moment and I'm overly committed I'm at like book 13 and I haven't really enjoyed any of them but there's four books left to go which makes you think I'm not very stimulated by this there's definitely no meaning so but it's clearly a response to boredom is there some kind of weird interplay between motivation to finish and get through boring materials I'm not sure if I framed that correctly but Please tell me why I'm doing this to myself, Stefan. What am it's I doing?
0: Probably, that's probably very specific to you. So maybe <laughs> we would have, would have stopped, but it's probably like a, this escalation of commitment. So you have committed so much, you have invested so much so that people don't stop. And this is like in, in business, we businesses, would also observe that, right? When the business has invested a lot of money in, in, in some things, it's really difficult to stop them. Even if it's like clear that you should stop. So maybe you should stop reading the books.
1: Maybe maybe I should, but I'm so close to the end. Yeah, yeah,
0: so close. Only four books left.
1: It's true, right, so far. I mean, I think he's still writing them, which is the problem. But this is just, I don't know, I'm having this thought. It feels like, in a way, like definitely as I'm reading them, I do get frustrated sometimes. I'm not going to go out and be sadistic towards people, but I'm just kind of wondering if people are... Thinking of online trolls and maybe I'm in them all with the same brush here. People playing the same game for long periods of time or grinding or watching the same series for long periods of time. Is there some kind of like boredom buildup that leads to outbursts or something? something like this?
0: Yeah, yeah, and there are many factors that kick, that are responsible for whether a person does or does not harm others in the end, mm-hmm. also on the internet. So the first one is an antisocial personal, personality or like a sadistic personality. So people mm-hmm. who in general like to harm others, they also do it in, on the internet. They bully others. So it's like a general tendency. But then the opportunity is also a big factor. So when people can do it, and it's very easy to do it on the internet. It's more difficult when you're a sadist in, in a school like, and you like to bully others and the teacher is present, right? So then it's, that's a bit more difficult. So that tells us that we need monitoring. We need strong social norms against bullying, against online harassment. So we, we need to, to reduce the opportunity for the bad guys to engage in their evil behavior. And we need to provide... People and especially bad guys, that's also what our research shows, with alternatives. So, when at goals or also in private lives, and people have good alternatives that they can engage in meaningful behavior that is maybe also stimulating. So, I like to cook, yes, and I'm not harassing others on the internet, but like playing sports or board games or like having really good alternatives mm-hmm. is so important to reduce, yeah. Um, aggression and violence uh, in 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 all contexts yeah so when people are mm-hmm. bored and don't know what to do they seek out stimulating behavior and we need to provide them as a society with alternatives as well i think
1: and so it sounds a little bit then like we should almost be avoiding boredom is that fair to say
0: So to to some degree, I would, yes, definitely. Like long episodes of boredom, it's bad for your emotional life because it feels bad. And like it motivates, especially bad guys to do bad things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we should avoid always having a short boredom episode. This is not a problem. But at least when I remember my time in school, I was bored so often. So maybe we should also think about uh, helping our youngest to feel less bored.
1: Yeah? yeah. So now I'm wondering if the inspiration for the, your research on boredom in schools and status and regression was actually a personal case study for you, Stefan. <laughs> you
0: know, hey, I want to remain silent here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, then. So just getting back to this idea of social conflict, do you have an impression of any relationship between boredom and social conflict, or am I grasping at straws here? And I guess the reason I'm wondering this is that we always talk about this idea of give people bread and circuses and they won't be sadistic in this case. So, does that actually work?
0: So, I think it, it works to some extent, yes, because when we are bored, we seek out stimulation, excitement, and Or some people also seek out excitement and stimulation in general, and they might get this excitement from engaging in social conflicts. I think this is part of the stories of the general story of humans that we need stimulation, we need to feel and experience things, right? Mm -hmm. When you are in a position of power, this is a possibility.
1: No, absolutely. It sounds like Overall, the relationship, or what your research shows and then thinking about social conflict that ideally we want to be stimulated in a way that doesn't cause us to basically go against others that's fighting them or picking on them or, or being generally sadistic, and hopefully not invading their country either. And on the other hand of things, there's this balance to be played as far as compassion goes about who we're compassionate for and when. I mean, say there were a social conflict right now, okay? And so it's you against Australians, okay? So just you personally, you're taking on every Australian in the world. You might be up for something and we've got kangaroos on our side. But if we're there and all of Australia is bored and they're coming after you, what would you do about this as far as Australians' boredom, as far as their compassion? Like, actually, what? how can you de-escalate this whole conflict sort of step v V Australia?
0: Uh, so I think... We need structural solutions, so like mediators. <laughs> like,
1: Yay! <laughs> yeah, like like you. A answer. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm, I'm for sure, because we have so every side of the conflict, of course, has their own subjective and biased perspective. So I'm right, and you probably would also say all Australians are right. Yeah, um, <laughs> all of
1: us. <laughs> there's millions more of us than you so we must be right you don't know how it works <laughs> yeah
0: but, so it's difficult to uh, change people's uh, bottom levels because they the experiences in their private life right mm-hmm. so we need to come up with like uh, solutions like like your work and like having mediators that come in and help both sides to solve the problem and, mm. and here, empathy and compassion might then really help us again, like this universal intergroup empathy, right? Or like compassion, that we feel yeah. also compassion for the outgroups.
1: Okay. And I love that you threw mediators in there. I always enjoy hearing that. And so I guess as a, as a final question, if you had to design a society that was minimum sadistic and then pro-social towards others, would the society look like what would they be like
0: so i think we need ethics so like the social norm of universal compassion really feel compassion for all humans in this society and then the second point we need meaningful things to do we need meaningful work we need meaningful relationships and if we have that i think this is a society I would like to live in.
1: <laughs> oh, sounds pretty good. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And so for those who are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you?
0: So you can find me on the internet, of course, or also reach out to me. So I'm always interested for a discussion via email, via whatever
1: the platform is And if you're really lucky, he'll record how to pronounce his name for you. That's the goal. Perfect. Thank you again so much, Stefan. And everyone else, until next time, this is Laura May with the conflict tipping podcast from Mediate.com.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.